How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Thanks for joining us today for How I Got Here, Focus Wire and Mozio's podcast about travel and transportation startups. Today we are here with Tyler from LoungeBuddy. LoungeBuddy was founded actually six years ago to the day and recently sold to Amex. They build software for consumers to access airport lounges and SaaS software for those airport lounges to manage their members. Uh, so thanks for being with us, Tyler. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your acquisition by Amex. You must be very excited. I absolutely am. Um, it's uh, been been one heck of a journey, and you know, as you mentioned, six years ago was was the day to the day was when we were uh, incorporated. But of course, when you come up with an idea, it was it was almost a year earlier than that. So you know, we're 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 ticking up on almost seven years since since this idea was formed, and uh, it's certainly been a been an exciting year for us to date, and I think uh, a whole lot of a whole lot more exciting things to come now as a part of American Express. Tyler, just, yeah, it's Kevin here from the UK. Uh, good, good morning to you. So uh, I'm curious, you know, David just referenced that it's uh, six years ago to the day that you incorporated. Does it feel as if it's six years ago? Some, in some ways it does, especially when I think back to the various office moves. We are now in our fourth space since we started. Um, the, 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 the variety of people I worked with, getting, getting our initial deals done, um, talking to, to our investors, our earliest investor pitches, looking back on that stuff. Uh, even, even looking back on our original media articles when we first launched, we were, we were very fortunate to have been extremely successful in getting a lot of a media attention, uh, in 2013 when we, when we first launched our product. But in other ways, it's, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. And so particularly when you take a step back, it really is a blink of the eye. And I think a lot of, a lot of companies are looked at this way that are startup type companies or, or, or venture backed or technology focused companies, particularly from the, from the, the consumer audience. I mean, you know, companies like Uber, people talk about, wow, you know, this IPO is such a big thing, but, you know, Uber's, Uber's a decade old. And while, of course, compared to a company like, you know, IBM, uh, that's, that's significantly older or, or, you know, or others, Hewlett Packard, right, that are many, many decades old, um, certainly not that old, but when you're living it, breathing it every day, uh, it does, it does carry a different perspective. <laughs> okay. Uh, so why don't you just you know, very briefly give us the kind of the company history of Lounge Buddy from those six plus years ago then? Well, there's a lot of ways one could look at that, but I think the, the general the, the general overview is today Lounge Buddy is around thirty employees. We're headquartered in San Francisco, which is where the company was founded. Uh, it was actually founded in my living room, and for the first six months, we worked out of my dining room in San Francisco, subsequently moved over to a co-working space in Jackson Square, 
then over to North Beach and now into our current office in Chinatown of San Francisco. And, you know, over that time, the, the reason for those moves were the incremental team members that we were um, able to add on as, as our organization grew. But really from the business perspective, uh, we started off as focusing on being the single resource for airport lounge photos, content, data, reviews, and access rules. And essentially, think of that almost like a uh, TripAdvisor um, or a Yelp or a Zagat of airport lounges, but also layering on showing you which lounges you were actually eligible to visit. And to talk specifically, because I know the term lounge is used in a couple of different ways in the airport. We're talking about the VIP airport lounges that were typically built to cater to first and business class and elite travelers out there. Of course, the lounge industry has certainly expanded beyond that group with the uh, rise of independent lounge providers as well. But basically, there was one thing that we knew that was a big challenge, and that was there are these wonderful spaces in airports all over the world. and not a good place to actually figure out which lounges were in a particular airport, what was inside, whether a specific lounge was worth visiting or not, and most importantly, how to get in. And as we continue to build on that resource, we knew that the second part of the challenge that we wanted to solve was helping travelers who did not have access to airport lounges, which we estimated to be somewhere between 90 and 95% of the traveling population to be able to have an opportunity to get a glimpse at what's inside and then have an opportunity to purchase access when there was available capacity in these spaces. Now, it sounds simple enough, but as we all know, uh, if you don't have the appropriate infrastructure, um, then that's when you... <laughs> really have to start everything from, from the ground up. And what I mean by that is, despite the airport lounge industry focusing on the most valuable travelers in the world, there really was no technology or innovation to speak of in this industry. And so we knew that in order to take that leap from being a great resource for information, to actually helping travelers to access these lounges, we also had to build a real-time inventory management platform. And essentially what that means is, think of services like OpenTable or Resi, where you could go online, see available restaurants, look at reviews, look at photos, but also make that restaurant reservation. And doing so meant that you had to have a system on the other side, on the restaurant side, in order to receive those reservations, block off tables, make sure you don't overbook the restaurant, um, provide information about customers, have a means of contact, and, and do so, of course, all in real time. And what they built for restaurants, we built for the airport lounge industry. And so doing so meant that we actually had to provide these lounges not only with great software, but the actual hardware to run it. Because many of these lounges, frankly, were doing check-ins, no joke, 
with clipboard type technology. And when I say clipboards, I mean physically printing out pieces of paper in order to check that <laughs> Right. Now, um, they're not all the same, you know. Uh, some, of course, are much more advanced than others. And I'm not certainly not trying to knock the industry because I'm sure some industry folk are listening to this saying, no, you're wrong, you know, my, my <laughs> lounge that I'm responsible for, our company that we work for, they're so much better. And they've certainly evolved. But we're talking today. And frankly, even six or 10 years ago, that wasn't the case for most of these groups. And so we knew that there was a lot of challenges ahead, but of course, with challenges come opportunities. And secondly, with significant fragmentation, create opportunities. And that was really another big piece here. I mean, when you think about restaurants, for example, of course, there are a lot of big chains, but frankly, you know, some of the most frequented restaurants are not ones that, uh, particularly ones where you're making reservations at, are not ones that might have 100 locations. And so as a result, uh, there's a lot of fragmentation in the restaurant industry in the same way that there's a lot of uh, um, uh, fragmentation in the airport lounge industry. There's actually not a single lounge provider that has more than about 5% of the world's lounges. So we knew that that meant getting a lot of deals done in order to uh, be able to have global coverage, but it also meant you know, helping to uh, build a moat um, against future potential competitors. I, had a, I remember me, the first time we met Tyler was about five, six years ago in San Francisco. One of the things that stood out to me was you uh, mentioned that the airport lounge industry was $9 billion. And I still remember that. And maybe that I got that number wrong right now in retrospect since it was a long time ago. But I remember thinking about how I had never used airport lounges before that point. And there was this entire industry that I didn't know about. So, and I think this is kind of an interesting thing for, for our listeners is that there's, you know, so many niche industries in the travel and transportation industry that people don't, you know, necessarily think about disrupting. Uh, I'm curious how you came across the idea to start doing this. Were you just a airport lounge enthusiast? Uh, you know, what was that uh, initial kind of aha moment where you, you figure this is something you want to spend your time solving? Well, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of layers in that question. So let me try to peel them away here quite a, a little bit. And if I miss any, feel free to follow up with a question. The, the way that I got into this industry was I was a consumer of airport lounges myself. I have been a, a travel enthusiast since I was a little kid with our annual family vacation that we take. We typically go one place outside of the U.S. each year, starting around the age of 13 for me, I think. And I, it was just magic. And I very quickly caught on to what all these perks were in the travel world and particularly around airport lounge access. And frankly, it was American Express that helped me catch that travel bug at a young age because I had made it my mission back in high school to get the American Express Centurion card, uh, which is also known as the black card. Um, I know, I, 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 was a, I was a strange kid in, in high school. I still am a strange adult now, but... Um, with, with, with different priorities, I guess I would say. But oh, I think it works uh, out in the end. Like, <laughs> it, well, it certainly does. It, it, it certainly does. And, uh, but 
that card, like one of the coolest perks about that card was um, earning elite status with a lot of uh, travel related businesses like hotel programs and airline programs, but also getting airport lounge access. And as a result of that, I was able to really dive in and learn a lot about this industry. And frankly, what I think makes the airport lounge such an amazing opportunity is, you know, every air traveler has one thing in common, if you're flying commercially, of course, which is 99.99% of of travelers out there. And that is you've got to pass through at least two airports in order to get to your destination. And while airports are improving, certainly are, it's still a very stressful and very uncertain experience, right? There's a lot of variables and, and people just behave differently in airports, even if it's similar to like a shopping mall or something else. And so frankly, there's not a lot you can control within the airport experience, but being able to make the most of your time is something that is within our control. And the airport lounge really is that oasis in the airport. And so I knew that there was some kind of opportunity here, but I didn't really know what that all meant. And so I tried to do a lot of research on what the size of this industry was in order to understand the, the size of the opportunity. Um, you know, given that we're a Silicon Valley company, I thought about you know, what would it take in order to raise investment, whether it's from angel investors, like individuals who would put in a, a check or venture capitalists, right? More, more larger groups or professional investors that would, that would typically write a, a larger check. And frankly, um, one of the biggest questions they all ask is how big is the opportunity? Well, given that there really wasn't any other company approaching this industry in the way that we were, there wasn't a lot of historical references that I could look to, nor is there any real good information published about this industry. So truly was, as they say, wild, wild west with this. Just and talk, back in the early, that, early days. Just, yeah, just, just on that, Tyler, just, that's a really interesting point. You know, if there wasn't any research available and you were at the very early stages of, I guess, of what, you know, some people call customer discovery. How did you make the a convincing case to people to to back the organization, whether it was with friends and family, angels, VC, whatever? How? What kind of? What was your? What was your pitch to them? Given that there was very little information about the addressable market. Yeah. Well, we took a similar approach to what I believe the story Uber told in the early days, which was, if someone asked you 10 years ago, what's the total addressable market for people booking transportation through an app and then having that vehicle come to you and take you to another point, what would it be? And the answer is zero. We're close to it, right? And uh -huh. so what you have to do is you've got to flip the question and say, well, wait a second, it's not what's the total addressable market for what exists today. It's what is the problem you're trying to solve and how many dollars can you bring into that industry? 
Um, and so for us, we looked at two things. One was this notion of ancillary revenue is on the rise. And again, look back six years, seven years, eight years ago, where ancillary market was just starting to flourish. And of course, it's now such you know, a core um, uh, value creator or, or, or revenue driver for basically any airline in the world, right? It's a necessity these days. And then it was just starting to become a big thing, you know, this, this larger thinking of unbundling, so to speak. So, so we looked at that. And then we also looked at what are travelers already paying in the airport to try and recreate or create a similar experience to what you'd get in a lounge anyway. So things like how much are travelers spending on a meal or at the bar or at a spa, you know, so, so restaurants, wine bars, um, uh, spas, uh, even like day use hotel rooms, these types of options where they're trying to recreate what you get in a lounge, um, as well as what's the current volume going through airport lounges today? How are people valuing that, uh, that visitation if you were to break it away from uh, uh, unbundle it, so to speak, from, from say, a business or a first-class ticket? Uh, and what would travelers be willing to pay in order to get that experience if they're not flying first or business class or don't have elite status, i.e. don't have uh, that credential or that, that existing access today? Yeah. And it was, it was very rough math because, again, it's just making an educated guess with what's available to you and then doing your best to try and prove that theory. I, so what's interesting about that answer is that I feel like um, you obviously never really got to some of those other options. Um, you, you mentioned a bunch of things other than airport lounges. Um, how, I think, did you, were that, was that really part of the launch plan at any point or was it kind of always like, well, this is what the market could be and it was mostly done for investors and raising that big round of funding, but, you know, really internally at Lounge Buddy, you guys kind of thought of it more like, okay, well, that's a big, big vision. We probably will never get there. We're mostly just focusing on lounges. Um, how, how much of that was kind of more for the investors and how much of it was really kind of a, a real plan? Well, investors always want to hear not just what are you working on tomorrow, but what are you working on three years, five years, 10 years from now? How is this not going to be just a really good business but a huge business. And um, even when we first set out to build and launch Lounge Buddy, we always knew that the underlying goal was to help travelers have a great airport experience. Now, fortunately, airport lounges solve for the majority of travelers' pain points and can help create that great experience. But in some airports or under some circumstances, that is not the case. And so that mission evolved slightly to matching the traveler's needs with the right airport experience. And we started doing that actually beyond airport lounges um, before the acquisition by American Express. And one example of this was with our partnership with a company called Minute Suites. 
as well as a partnership called uh, with the Dubai International Hotel. So both of these brands are inside security in the terminal. So Minute Suites is in various locations across the United States, and the Dubai International Hotel, as the name implies, is in the, the Dubai um, International Airport. And what we were able to do was work with them on their available inventory in order to book their private rooms. And Minute Suites, as the name implies, are these little mini uh, hotel-like rooms, but micro-sized with a sofa that converts into a bed, a private works, uh, computer workstation, a television, Wi-Fi, very calming environment. And the Dubai International Hotel is a, is a full-scale, full-service hotel with a gym and a pool and all that good stuff. And uh, to be able to uh, book these rooms by the hour. Because one thing that we found was that travelers aren't traditionally booking overnight-type stays like you would in a regular hotel. And is there an opportunity to actually get more than 100% occupancy? And you can do that by renting the same room out multiple times in a 24-hour period. And you can effectively get more than 100% of the overnight room rate as a result if you're relatively efficient with this. So we proved some very, um, uh, some very good early success with that. Um, of course, then the acquisition came with American Express, but uh, with both of those providers, um, we are still offering uh, those types of services through the LoungeBuddy platform today. I, I suppose uh, another way of perhaps reframing the question, uh, Tyler, in a more flippant way is how many URLs did you buy that ended with the word buddy.com? <laughs> we uh, did evaluate alternative names or <laughs> names that, that could be considered similar. I think we own Lounge Pal and some others okay. uh, in case, in case um, uh, people wanted uh, to, to try and create a copycat product. But, um, you know, even though, of course, Lounge Buddy is a name that focuses what people would say on airport lounges, frankly, if you take the word lounge and think about it, it's more of a place to relax, to sit, yeah, to, to, to enjoy. And so you may be able to uh, relax or enjoy uh, something that's, that's beyond what someone would say airport lounge, which is why we didn't say airport lounge buddy, of course. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, you, you, could, you could actually use the name a little bit further than, than just uh, airport lounges themselves, we think. I, th I think what's what's quite interesting, and uh, you know, it's something that David and I have talked about beforehand when we were, you know, throwing questions around about what to talk to you about. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that your uh, investment of four million—correct me if I'm wrong—is a fairly modest amount in today's terms. I mean, just talk us through what the strategy was with raising money and. I think the one thing I'd really like to know is what could you have done if you'd raised a lot more, if you had the opportunity? So we, we did not fully disclose exactly how much we raised in total. Um, I can say that it was certainly significantly less than what most companies who eventually reached an exit would have raised in a similar position. Yeah, I'm just going um, by crunch base, that's okay. 
Yes, Crunchbase is a is a wonderful resource for those who have never heard of Crunchbase or listening to this. It's a great <laughs> resource to get some intel on companies, but not everything is announced and not all their information is 100% uh, accurate, although they do certainly try their best to have, have as much accuracy as possible. Um, we, we were certainly a company that that was focused more on getting media attention and and celebrating milestones around growth, around revenues, around customer satisfaction, rather than around fundraising. And as a result, uh, we really downplayed a lot of um, our fundraising efforts and and. You know, we, we had a great group of investors that were incredible supporters, both in terms of emotional support and, and, and great advice uh, along the way, because we certainly needed it. But one thing that I think those that aren't in this industry day in and day out is that some of the most successful outcomes for entrepreneurs um, are companies that don't raise hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And um, as uh, I think back when I was uh, listening to um, a different variety of music than I normally listen to today, uh, I believe I will quote a rapper that said, Mo money, mo problems, um, which I think is very true in this industry. Um, you know, the more money you raise, the more pressure there is to do certain things. And oftentimes what can happen is uh, the more shareholders you have and the more people that are attached to the organization, the more directions the founders can be pulled in uh, and, and more pressure to perform a certain way, which may be beneficial but in many cases I've found can either be distracting um, or net negative to the overall business because it does not necessarily allow you to focus on your core vision uh, as a founder rather than on the, the vision or the goals of your shareholders, which are typically your investors uh, when you raise a lot of money. I, and. Following up on that, how did, you, how did you think about, I mean, obviously we're in a, we're in a age here of $10, mil, $10 billion Uber fundraising rounds uh, and a lot of people raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And I, I get where you're coming from because um, I know there are a lot of businesses that, you know, with 5 million or 10 million, it doesn't really make a difference if they're reliant on some sort of building some sort of infrastructure that isn't reliant on money. More money doesn't necessarily always make a difference. I, I'm curious how you kind of, thought about yourself and realized that maybe um, raising twice as much money wasn't going to actually allow you to move faster and how you decided you weren't one of those Uber companies? Well, with some businesses, and I, and I hate to say this, but with some businesses with some ideas, first and foremost, being an entrepreneur in any business in any part of the world, and there are tens or even hundreds of millions of entrepreneurs all over the world. Many are, are just more focused on starting a corner store or opening a small restaurant or, or 
you know, having a, a retail business or, 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 or a million and one other things, right? So, I mean, entrepreneurs exist all over the place, not just in Silicon Valley, of course. And most businesses raise no money. But when you look at Silicon Valley-based businesses, the reason why so much money goes into these businesses is the potential for these businesses to scale exponentially relative to the money that's put into the business. The challenge is that uh, it's twofold. Number one, some of these uh, investment groups have raised so much money from their investors that they have to deploy more and more capital because that's the whole point of, of these super large funds is to deploy this money. Uh, and so oftentimes they look for businesses that are looking to raise large sums of money. Now the problem is, and some people say this, and I've, I've said this sometimes out of frustration, although I don't know that it's 100% accurate, but sometimes it's easier to raise 10 or 20 or 50 or $100 million than it is to raise one or two million dollars from certain investors. And that's just because they want to be able to deploy larger sums of capital in hopes that they can get a much larger return as a result. So it was uh, just, it's what, three years since, or four years even since your last raise. I believe, according to the sometimes not always correct crunch base. Um, have you felt the need in those intervening four years to raise more money or did you raise enough at the last round to keep you going right up to where you started your conversations about an exit to Amex? So a couple things there. Um, when, when we talk about getting acquired, by the way, we, we don't even use the term exit because none of our team actually exited. The only people who exited from, from, this, uh, uh, from, from this acquisition were our investors. And the reason being is their shares, of course, were, were purchased by American Express. We think of this almost as the next chapter in our journey. That's a and, nice way of putting it, actually. Yeah. You very rarely hear someone who's just done what you've done talk about it in those terms it's quite a uh, it's quite an interesting way of putting it it's always maybe that's because certainly us in the media often use the word exit because it's just part of the vernacular well and and oftentimes the 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 talking heads that, that talk about these deals are the investors and they right. are getting an exit they're the ones that are you know washing their hands of this getting paid sometimes getting an exponential return, sometimes not getting any return or losing a lot of money, depending on, on the specific investment, and, and then moving on to the next thing, right? Yeah. Or it might be they have their hands in 100 companies, and this is just one, and check it off and, 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 and move on. The, to go back to the previous question for a moment, too, one of the things, one of the reasons why we thought it was so important to not raise an excessive amount of capital too, was that it forced us to focus on the most important things, which is growing our customer base, growing our partners, and being efficient so that we can get to profitability. 
And I know that sounds a lot of crazy. I know that sounds crazy to a lot of people who are listening who aren't in the entrepreneurial world. What do you mean getting to profitability? Shouldn't you have a business plan that <laughs> that is a profitable business plan and then figuring out how you can continue to grow? Well, I mean, you know, again, I, I keep I keep referencing Uber, but you know, yesterday Uber announced their latest results and they only lost a billion dollars last oh, quarter. Is that right? all? Oh, okay. And, and, you know, look like, like Uber is an amazing business and um, I, I, I really respect how they've, they've, they've impacted the world. Um, uh, some, some, some parts for the better and some parts not for the better, but uh, to be able to, uh, get to eventual profitability. I mean, Amazon. Amazon lost money for for years and years and years, and now today they are certainly a highly profitable business and one of the most valuable businesses in the world, right? So oftentimes the the time horizon to getting to profitability can be substantial. For some businesses, it's just a necessity in order to get to that eventual profitability. But for many businesses, I think it's a crutch and it's this expectation or almost this drug that all we need to do is just grow customers or grow revenues or both, but not grow towards profitability, not move towards positive margins. And what of course happens with a lot of businesses is well maybe some businesses maybe not a lot is that that drug may dry up and it could be because investors get fatigued by that story it could be because the economy shifts in a different direction or it could be because that specific market no longer becomes as hot as it was before yeah and what happens if you're a highly unprofitable business that requires significant capital infusions to continue to operate is you are at the mercy of your investors. And uh, that is a very dangerous path, in my opinion, for many businesses. And for us, we knew from day one that we did not want to go down that path. We wanted to make sure we could maintain our independence. And if raising additional capital led to a very specific path to growing revenues and therefore growing our bottom line and could be profitable, but could be that we reinvest the course, those profits into continued growth, then fantastic. But if it was more just, well, we're going to raise a lot of money because we can, we'll of course use that to grow, but that growth is either unsustainable or highly unprofitable, then uh, we knew that was a, a, a dangerous path to go down and decided not to pursue it. Got it. And by doing so, that meant, and it sent a very clear message throughout our entire company of how can we be creative with our frugality while still growing the business? And you know, I'm happy to say that you know, since we we raised our you know, last amount of capital, which was years ago, that uh, we did actually reach profitability as a business and still continued to grow, uh, you know, 
hundreds of percentage points year over year uh, because we were almost forced into doing so, into, into being as innovative and as frugal as we could at the same time. Cool. Um, so I think it would be really interesting to delve a little bit deeper into uh, that relationship with Amex because I know it uh, was formed over years. We won't call it an exit, um, but I, you obviously built a relationship over years in order to get to that next phase that you alluded to. Um, I, I think our listeners would be super interested to hear kind of how you took that from initial deal to much more closer relationship, how you helped, um, you know, got them more uh, dependent on you if that was the case, uh, and then uh, managed to uh, negotiate uh, a, a transition into uh, merging forces. Well, oftentimes your best potential acquirers are the entities that know you best, that understand the unique value you can bring. I mean, there are many ways in order for a business to get acquired. It could be a private equity firm might see special value you know, in the business that they think they can get a multiple on. It could be that you merge with another organization because those two organizations together can create certain efficiencies or synergies that separately would, would, would not make as much sense or not be as efficient. Um, or it could be that the business that a business that you've worked with uh, currently or in the past uh, knows that they can unlock special value that goes beyond just a partnership by you being under the umbrella of that organization. And that's essentially what the American Express acquisition was of LoungeBuddy, which is that we had a two plus year. Uh, relationship with them prior to this acquisition closing. And during that time, while that was a commercial agreement that we had, um, it was also kind of like dating, right? We got to know them really well, and they got to know us really well. And I think that was one of the key reasons why this acquisition discussion uh, was formed was they knew that we could actually deliver on our promises and that we weren't just smelling, selling snake oil, that we were actually creating unique value you know, in an industry that they value highly as well because their customers value it. Premium credit cards like the American Express Platinum Card and Centurion Card or or other brands like City's Prestige Card here in the U.S. or the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, they all provide airport lounge access. And the reason being is that this is one of the most highly valued benefits of all credit cards in the world. Those credit cards that are typically charging, you know, three hundred dollars and up, or you know, hundreds of pounds, or whatever the currency is that that you're looking at in your respective country, um, airport lounge access is almost certainly one of those benefits. And it's almost always at the top of the list. And so, you know, the company American Express, they have certainly uh, invested heavily in innovation. And 
they have a customer base that really is at the top end of, of premium customers. And so it really was this, this perfect fit of, you know, we are leveraging technology in order to deliver a premium customer experience in the airport where high value customers, you know, spend more time than typically than non high value customers. And so how can we work together in order to uh, leverage our technology to American Express's tens of millions of high value card members all over the world? And so it really was like in hindsight, such an obvious thing, but it took years to build that trust with their brand because, I mean, they're also a bank holding company and they're very risk averse company, too. And so if it wasn't for that partnership that we had with them for years, I don't think this acquisition would have happened with them um, because they, they, want, they want to go through that dating period uh, before, um, before jumping in and getting married, so to speak, with an acquisition. I think hey, that's I, pretty key yeah, when it comes to uh, you know, strategic acquisitions in general. I've, I've noticed that um, there are, yeah, there's a category kind of of uh, private equity firms that are willing just to kind of judge you based on EBITDA, but you're going to get most value, you know, when you are building that relationship. And I've seen people, you know, pre-partnership, you know, versus post-partnership the multiple price uh, for their, you know, their company just because they were able to de-risk it. So I think that's a, you know, generally a, a good rule of thumb, but Kevin, sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 it's fine. It's it's interesting because Lounge Buddy is such a an, an an obvious brand for a travel management company to invest in and or you know, acquire, etc. Um, did you work with any other TMCs in during the kind of early and mid kind of mid age of Lounge Buddy? Anyway, and how did that kind of work out if you had those kind of relationships with other TMCs as you got closer and closer to Amex? Uh, with the end result being an acquisition? Well, one of our earliest investors, which actually came about as a result of winning a competition from them, was Concur. And this was actually right before Concur was acquired by SAP, which is a very large deal for both Concur and SAP. And so... We and 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 over time we we worked with uh, with Expedia as well uh, more or on you know the travel agency side a little bit on the agencia side which is more of mm. Expedia's uh, TMC like like brand but our 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 value prop to to TMC C like brands as well as consumer um, OTAs online travel agencies was. Uh, how can we, number one, bring content to travelers who may already have access to airport lounges so they can understand what's included with their, with their ticket purchase if they're buying a business or first class ticket or they've got that elite status? And number two, is there an opportunity to diversify revenue from just selling a plane ticket or a hotel room or travel insurance, Right. And those are categories that everybody, you know, looks at. Are there additional revenue streams where you can provide a value added product 
that is personalized and meaningful to the traveler, right? And doesn't just look like an upsell, right? It's all well and good if someone's trying to sell me on, you know, you don't want to sell somebody an airport lounge when you know they've got a 30-minute layover in the airport. It just doesn't make sense, yeah. right? So how can you deliver that personalized value or, or selling me parking, you know, when I don't even have a car, right? Why would I buy airport parking if I don't even have a car, right? So how can you deliver that, that, that personalized um, opportunities um, or knowing, you know, from the travel management side of things, if the expense policy for a particular uh, business traveler is they can't spend more than $35 in the airport, then why would we offer them a lounge that's $60? We should only show the lounges that are $35 or less. Right. And, you know, we had started to scratch the surface with some of those offerings. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this opportunity for, for acquisition came along and shifted our focus solely, you know, towards uh, bringing tremendous value to, to American Express and their card members. So Tyler, I think we got a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up. But one um, that Kevin and I were batting around before is that I think there's almost kind of a, a trope, at least among my other travel and transportation startup friends, which is uh, I've heard this saying that, you know, you start in consumer, then you go to B2B once you realize how hard that is. And if you last long enough, maybe you get the chance to go back to consumer. <laughs> and uh, I you had a consumer brand and you also had a SaaS platform and you, you mentioned that at the beginning of, of the call here, but um, I'm curious kind of how much you thought about um, the SaaS platform as a, you know, maybe a necessary evil to get the, the, the consumer app up and running, or was it the consumer app as a nice add on to the SaaS platform? Kind of, how did you think about your business? Were you, yeah, B2B first or, or, or what? And how did that evolve over time? Well, I hadn't heard that saying before, but it's interesting. I was doing a quick reflection on that while you were talking as to what our path actually was. So we started in consumer, but we started in the consumer side of just content, photos, ratings, and reviews, right? And access rules where we actually weren't generating any revenue whatsoever. It was more just providing a really cool, easy resource in order to build our brand and build that community of travelers that uh, allowed us to then uh, go out and partner with these airport lounges to be able to have inventory. And we had to build that, you know, B2B inventory management platform, but we were still just focused on consumers. Um, I think the reason why people get into the, um, the, the business to business side of things from the, from the travel perspective is one thing that most entrepreneurs underestimate in the travel world, particularly is how expensive it is to acquire customers. And so when you actually start doing the math beyond the first hundred or thousand diehard fans of your product that become your first customers, so that looks really good. But then once you get beyond that, it, you start looking at your numbers and you say, holy cow, you know, X business, and I'm not even saying lounge buddy, but just using a random business, let's say they make, you know, $20 margin on a sale, but it's costing that business $75 to acquire that customer. 
there's no way this makes financial sense. So how do they continue to grow at, without spending $75 per customer? And one way is they do spend the $75 per customer and they raise $100 million or half a billion dollars or something, right? The other way is that they partner with other businesses who already have those customers and say that they'll give a good chunk of their margin to those businesses in order to get those customers in hopes that those customers start using them directly and then they get higher margin and then can hope that they can uh, increase their consumer business as well. For us, we were actually fortunate in that we were able to maintain tremendous efficiency in our customer acquisition strategy. And so as a result, because of this, uh, this both relatively above average margin opportunity and our significant efficiency and powerful brand in this niche of, of the industry, but still an important part of the industry, uh, that allowed us to still have a very good direct consumer business. But we also didn't want to neglect the B2B side of things, which is why we partnered with the Expedias of the world, the uh, Concurs of the world, and of course, American Express as well. And so we thought that actually by having that dual strategy, it wasn't necessarily picking apples from the same tree, but two very different trees. Okay, so right, we're coming up to the end of time here, uh, Tyler. So two quick ones, one from me, and then uh, and then one from David. So the one from me is that you know you've, you've you've said a couple of times you know you're based on the west coast in the Valley, San Francisco area. If you were unable to be based there, what other location would you like to have headquartered the business? If 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 I could just go anywhere I want, uh, I would have. <laughs> Probably chosen Sydney, Australia. Okay. Uh, Zach, one of my two other fantastic co-founders, is originally from Sydney. We already have we have four team members in Sydney today. Uh, it's 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 a great city. It's a little bit remote from the rest of the world, but uh, an amazing place. And I certainly wouldn't mind making that my home for a while. Okay, David. Funny, I uh, I expected you to say something like on board a cruise ship or something like that. <laughs> I, I thought he might say Tahiti yeah. or something like that. <laughs> well, I remember Tyler did a. Uh, I think I remember you telling me you did a, a corporate retreat on board a cruise ship at one point. Uh, so I uh, expected something a little more nomadic, but uh, just didn't. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think we we like to end these with um, you know one pretty uh, standard question is which is you know what advice do you have for other budding travel and transportation entrepreneurs and I think we'd like to keep that specific to this industry um, and yeah just like to hear your your feedback. There's still a lot of magic in travel, and it really is an industry that's unlike any other. I do think having said that. There are other industries out there that might be easier to start and grow a business in, but there's no other industry like travel and being a part of it is something that I certainly wouldn't trade for anything else in the world. Having said that, um, just raising a ton of money should not be the thing that you, that you focus on or, or celebrate around. 
And remember, if you're starting a business that you plan on getting investment in and eventually, you know, hoping to, whether it's IPO or get acquired or merge with another business, if your horizon is less than six to 10 years, you should probably consider doing something else. Uh, but that's because that really is the nature of, of what it takes to, to come up with an idea, to start a business, to grow the business and eventually, you know, get, get to an outcome. That, that's, that's, that's great. Actually. I mean, for all the things you hear startup founders saying, there's nothing more upbeat than someone starting off by saying there's still a lot of magic in travel. So <laughs> I'm fairly inspired by that and I'm a dour old journalist. So that's terrific. Thank you very <laughs> Thank you very much. So uh, it, it really goes for us to say um, thank you, Tyler, for joining us on uh, how I got here. Um, we really appreciate the, the depth that you've uh, gone into with this as you know, it's one of the things that we're, that we've been talking about is that you with, many startup stories you only ever hear the nine or ten minutes that they often say at a pitch competition so it's been really good to kind of get under the hood of uh, of lounge buddy and the deal and, and um, i'm so glad that you told us not to call it an exit and all those kind of things and to really find out a lot more about you and the business so thank you tyler really appreciate it it's been a lot of fun thank you so much for for having me on the on the program and I certainly hope to all the listeners out there that, that this was this was helpful and meaningful or or at least uh, interesting. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, I'm Kevin May from Focuswide. Uh, thanks, uh, David Litwack from Mozio. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tyler. Appreciate okay. it. Okay, okay. So. Uh, if you're a debutante to how I got here, I um, hope you've enjoyed it. Tune in for another one and uh, uh, there'll be plenty of more of these to come and uh, the back catalogue will be up online as we start filling more of these over the next weeks and months. So uh, thanks ever so much to everybody for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.